Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. Books. Where would we be without books? Where would we be without Gulo's Interbird? It's a rhetorical question, sir. But where would we be without books? From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Claudia Rankin. Welcome to a Bookworm retrospective show, a celebration of 33 years of Bookworm on KCRW with Michael Silverblatt. Michael recorded more than 1,600 Bookworm conversations. He is on a hiatus right now for health reasons. In 1996, Michael spoke with writer David Foster Wallace about his novel, Infinite Jest. In the conversation, David revealed his intentions in his approach to writing Infinite Jest. I don't think I really understood what loneliness was when when I was a young man. And, And now I've got a much less clear idea of what the point of art is, but I think it's got something to do with loneliness and something to do with setting up a conversation between human beings. And... I know that when I started this book, I wanted to, I, I had very, I had very vague and not very ambitious ambitions. And one was I wanted to do something really sad. I'd done comedy before. I wanted to do something really sad. And I wanted to do something about what was sad about America. That was David Foster Wallace. Over the decades, Michael spoke with hundreds of writers about America, about its foundation, about its history and its challenges, and about its culture. In 1998, he spoke with novelist Russell Banks. My guest is Russell Banks, the author most recently of Cloud Splitter. And it is a life of John Brown. Teaching at Princeton, you are in a community with two other writers, Joyce Carol Oates and Toni Morrison, who've made racialism Mm -hmm. the center of a continuing investigation of American culture. It seems to me that the three of you come from very different backgrounds as artists and arrive in Princeton not because of this shared exploration, but coincidentally, Mm -hmm. yes? And I wanted to ask you to try and define what the nature of the definition going on of race in America is in your work. Well, I think all three of us feel, um, each in his or her own uh, way, um, that um, the story of race is the central narrative in the American story, Um, that one can't tell even a portion of the American story without um, confronting it and, uh, and dealing with it. I think Tony and Joyce and I all feel that this is... This is the this is perhaps the central story of American history. There are many others, of course, braided in there, but this is one that, that we both, all three of us, feel compelled to try to tell again and in, in, in our own terms. Certainly, the African American writers from the beginning have uh, realized the necessity to tell this story again and again, but white writers have shied away from it. Have said well, that's not a real story. In fact, if it is, it's over. Uh, the Civil War ended that story, didn't it? Um, and uh, and that's the end of it. Could you or could any white writer write a novel taking responsibility 
before the levels of fear and hatred. Mr. Baldwin said that um, the true story of um, racism will be told only when it's told from the point of view of the white racist. And I think that's true for any kind of um, oppression that is uh, participated in to such a wide degree, you know, that is cultural or historical oppression. That was Russell Banks discussing the story of America in fiction. Today's show is the first of three shows to look at the telling of this story. In 2009, Michael spoke with Nobel laureate Toni Morrison. My guest is Toni Morrison. It's been a long dream of mine to be able to talk to her face-to-face. We've spoken together in interview on the phone before this, but this is the first time we've met. Her novel, A Mercy, has just been published by Knopf. Now, this book does seem to proceed to organize very rich, historical, and complex materials. But this takes us to our native soil, beginning in around 1680. The present tense of the novel is in 1690. And we're seeing natives, slaves, free black people, white people, traders, new landowners, indentured servants, and all of these types of people of many different religions and nationalities are finding a way into this novel to tell a story. Faulkner says writing a novel is like building a chicken coop in a cyclone. What is it like to organize such diverse materials? It's exhilarating just to attempt to struggle with the enormity, the immensity, not just of the subject matter, but of the continent, Um, trying to look at this very strange, very bountiful, but also very dangerous place. Who were these people? And to try to shape a narrative, which I suppose is what Faulkner meant, making order, summoning order out of this chaos. And then ultimately, finally, what you can only do with those 26 letters of the alphabet is to find meaning in that narrative and in that chaos and in the structure. But I wanted to ask you, about the idea of freedom in this book. What is it? People have already come to America claiming they're seeking at least freedom from religious persecution Mm -hmm. and other kinds, but what freedom can they find? They can find freedom from a certain kind of persecution, religious, and then reestablish it, a different kind of persecution on other people, which is often what they did. Most of them that were not involved in the uh, religious communities were looking for license, not freedom. Freedom was a, uh, hadn't become a brand name quite as it is now and was later uh, in the 18th century. Um, Florence 
believes she's a throwaway and that fundamentally she's so needy. She craves uh, connection and love. Any kind word is enough for her. So obviously when she falls in physical love, she's um, taken over by it and has to be sort of instructed about freedom. I have, the, the man says, I have seen slaves freer than free men. So he believes freedom is an inside job. What slave really means, legally um, uh, as well as in terms of emotionally and in terms of uh, the mind, when the blacksmith says, and she says, you own me, please, you own me. And he says, woman, own yourself. That was Toni Morrison. In 2003, Joyce Carol Oates had a conversation with Michael. She has most recently written a novel, I'll Take You There, published by Echo. And the first section takes our heroine, who narrates the book. She's aspiring to enter and does enter a sorority, the Kappas. And then she meets what looks like the embodiment of the revolution of that time in an American university in the 1960s. It's Syracuse University. And she enters a relationship with a black man. I think her experience of falling in love with him, while we can see it as disastrous for her, at the same time is quite educational. And in the beginning, I, I saw her falling in love with him is so quixotic and I knew she would be hurt but then as it went on I thought that this is very a r- very rich experience and that we fall in love with people who hurt us and who can never reciprocate our love yet we, we learn from them and we pick ourselves up afterward if we've been devastated and we're, we're more complex and I think spiritually enriched by this experience we're presented with a novel about um a girl who's wrong for a sorority, takes on a black lover, um, has a kind of um, cataclysmic relation with him, is rejected by him. I think one of the essential philosophical questions, which I, I find so fascinating, and I've never, of course, never solved it, is, is to, to what extent are we defined by our families, our genetic inheritance? To what extent are we defined by the names we're given before we're born, the names are prepared for us. Is there some sense in which we can, we can repudiate the past and create new identities for ourselves? I find this very fascinating. I mean, I would like to feel that the mind is so powerful that our intelligence and our, our habits of, of thought, that we can create our personalities to some extent and, and we're not fated by the past. I mean, I would really like to think that. And I can understand why a young black man in the early 1960s who is interested in philosophy does not want to be a, quote, Negro involved in, in uh, civil rights uh, agitation. He wants to be a philosopher. He, in a sense, he could be accused of denying his own identity, but from his point of view which I think is very legitimate, he simply doesn't want to take on the burden of the past. And I think this question for Americans is, is something that's always been with us since the very beginning. 
when people came to this country to get away from the old world. She discovers that her family, her grandparents, were very likely German Jews who came to this country and um, sort of obscured their backgrounds and changed their names. And so they, they, want, they want to be assimilated into, into American society. Now, I learned that about my own, my father's parents, my father's um, grandparents, actually, who were German Jews and came to this country in, eight, in the 1890s. And they changed their name from Morgenstern to Morningstar. And they sort of hid in, the up, in upstate New York, you know, in, in the mm. countryside, where there were no Jews anywhere, there were no synagogues, and, and none of their old culture from the old world. And so as I grew up, I never knew, nor did my, my parents know, I don't think my father even knew, that his mother was Jewish. She never told anyone, and her name was not Jewish. Um, and so... I only learned about this about five or six years ago. I mean, I'm a fully adult woman, learning that there's a whole part of my background I never knew about. And so I'm thinking about this in an almost metaphysical way. I mean, what does that mean about one's identity? Do we, do we have still a subterranean identity even if we don't know about it consciously? So I've been quite fascinated by this question. In 1991, Michael had an earlier Bookworm Conversation with Joyce Carol Oates. We'll be talking about two of her recent books as well, Because It Is Bitter and Because It Is My Heart, soon to be published by Penguin. And I Shut My Door Upon Myself um, by Echo Press. Frequently in italics in your book, many of them, there'll be talk about secret blood and in I Shut My Door Upon Myself the epigram appears that blood is memory without consciousness. Can you talk a bit about blood? In the, in the way in which I'm using it, it's a sort of generic term that means inherited predilections. To, to what extent are our personalities inherited in the genes and in the DNA? And to what extent are we free? Is it some sort of composite of the two? And because it is bitter and because it is my heart, and I lock my door upon myself, both deal with, <clears throat> with racial relations, you could, you could say, in a kind of reductive manner. And, of course, nothing seems so prominent in terms of racial contrast than what we've inherited from our ancestors because it, would, it may, seems to make us distinct from each other in, in ways that are sometimes not what, what we would like, that we would like not to be divided in terms of inherited characteristics. How does one overcome something so primary? It's very primary, but at the same time seems somewhat superficial. One of the things that I suspect you know better than any other writer I can think of is the way people find themselves drifting into behaviors that they hope to avoid or would not necessarily claim as their own, um, almost a kind of ongoing passivity. Would you agree with that? Well, for some people who don't really 
have consciousness of their lives. One of the themes that I'm really obsessed with, and I, I can't stress it too much in terms of my own life because I keep writing about it constantly, but I also keep thinking about it constantly. It must be the great theme of my, my whole existence is how we, as sentient and conscious and intelligent human beings, are surrounded by pockets of ignorance and darkness, we, almost like black holes, areas of not knowing. It's best exemplified by the tragic hero, heroes like King Lear, who it's said about Lear, he but slenderly knows himself. And I feel that's a kind of epitaph for the human race. I see it in my own self. I struggle to have consciousness to learn. I, I'm reading constantly. I'm trying to learn all the time. I feel very happy when I've learned some little bit of knowledge. Yet there's a constant forgetting, too. And there is a an acquisition of intelligence and knowledge, but then the forgetting. And I think that's one of the curses of our species that we both know and don't know. And my plays are often about that, and the novels tend to be about that, that people are denying so much. People know very well that all men and women are brothers and sisters, and it doesn't matter the color of the skin, and it shouldn't matter the religion. I mean, we all basically know that. This seems something that's that's self-evident, and the Christian religion supposedly teaches that. However, people then forget it, and they behave in ways that are co- contrary to that basic knowledge, and so on and so forth. I mean, I think I'm of, often writing about that. And how ordinary, intelligent, educated men and women in the United States don't know very basic things about the country. I don't exempt myself from that. That was Joyce Carol Oates. Today's show is the first of three shows to explore the story of America in fiction. We'll be back after the short break. This is Claudia Rankin, and in today's Bookworm Retrospective, we're hearing writers discuss the story of America. We heard Russell Banks mention that James Baldwin said that the story of America's racism must be told from the point of view of a white racist to be complete. In 1995, Michael talked with writer William H. Gass, a close friend whose work he greatly admired. Today, my guest is William H. Gass, the author of The Tunnel, published by Alfred Knopf. This book is a 653-page book um, composed over a period of 30 years. I think that there was no writer who mastered the syllables of the English language, who could play the vowels against one another. It sounded like a violin concerto. He was a brilliant soloist of prose, unforgettable, although his subject was always the Middle West. Ultimately, that subject was about the sadness of the lonely heart and also its viciousness. He was a writer at a certain point who realized that he had a talent for anger. And what we find in the tunnel is the expression of a character 
William Comer, who is the fiercest angry man in American fiction. Now, the narrator of this book, William Kohler, is a professor of history. He has studied modern Germany and sees in the rise of the Reich a model that is replicated in the arguments he's been having with his wife and his family, and he comes to understand what is referred to in the novel as the fascism of the heart. The book is trying to be in a, a number of things, but one thing it's trying to be, and one of the reasons it's called a tunnel, uh, is the inside of history. Uh, I chose uh, a, a historian who is just finishing a standard, objective kind of uh, narration uh, with uh, the kind of expectation you get in history where the arrangement of the narrative events will be explanatory. Uh, and uh, uh, when you come away from that, uh, that, that text, you will presumably understand what went on and why in historical events. Uh, and, and usually... The things that get left out of history are the very things that tend to undermine it. Uh, uh, among other things, the first thing is the historian himself, his nature uh, or her nature, uh, and the kind of uh, uh, aims and ambitions, uh, frustrations and problems they have. Inside those objective events are the private events, the uh, objective things that are accounted for by historians, uh, do not account for the inner life on the whole. And uh, uh, we have to remember also that while we're talking about the grand things, and historians love wars and changes of political uh, uh, regime and things of this sort, but even mass murderers have home lives. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and the uh, it, it's true that some people have blamed the German home-family relationship, the patriarchal father, etc., for the the uh, behavior of the people in the Third Reich. Uh, so that uh, what I'm trying to do is not only reduce history to localism, uh, particularly domestic, but also put it inside the head uh, where I think it belongs anyway. Uh, because really what counts in history for me is what happens to human consciousness and not just what happens, uh, you know, that piles up bodies. Uh, it's what was lost when you piled up bodies, what is gained um, when you decide not to. That was William H. Gass discussing his novel, The Tunnel, which takes up the subject of history as its central character struggles with fascism. In 2003, Michael talked with Joan Didion. Today I'm very happy and honored to have with me as my guest Joan Didion, whose most recent book, Where I Was From, was recently published by Alfred A. Knopf. Somehow or other, California, the subject of the book, which is part memoir, part essay, it's part many things, part literary criticism, almost as if California is being spared finally by a certain kind of uncertainty, not by exactly idealism or generosity, but an uncertainty as to whether 
the things being said about California are true merely of California or of America as a whole mm -hmm. and maybe human nature. Maybe human nature, yes. Um, the overwhelming question that I came to, I mean, the whole California story, uh, as it was told to me, had to do with the difficulty of getting here. Um, and once you got here, you were redeemed. Nobody ever talked about what you were redeemed for. Uh, the, the, the survival, getting through the mountains before the snow fell, was the big, big value. And and if if you had managed that, then then you were home free, as it were. Um, as I started thinking about it, and I mean, I mean, as I passed beyond not thinking about it into, into some kind of adult life. Um, uh, survival as, a, as, as, a, as an answer in itself began to seem a more and more doubtful um, value. I mean, survival by itself leaves you aware. Um, it, it's not, but, but California had always been about about uh, had always celebrated the act of survival, and you didn't know where. In some ways, I think we were left with, with no other, with with, with no higher value. Now, you mentioned, I believe it's your grandfather, who spoke about seeing danger, a rattlesnake, and the obligation to kill it, as being the code of the West. And although you cite through the book a couple of examples, one in which you do not kill a rattlesnake in a cemetery and your mother doesn't kill a copperhead near a baby's crib. But I think of these essays as being killing rattlesnakes, a kind of service for the next person to come <laughs> along for That's... the clearing of the poisonous, the suddenly striking aspect, the hidden. I like that idea. I would really be proud to do that. Here, where I was from, has that problematic was. It does, yeah. And it came to me as, 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 as just the right title and the title I wanted. And John immediately said, John, my husband, immediately said to me, um, well, uh, don't you mean it should be where I am from? Or are you trying to say here that you aren't from California anymore? I said, no, I'm not trying to say that. And I, we got into this sort of back and forth about it. And finally, it, finally, I was forced to think it through, and it occurred to me that the reason where I was from was right to seemed right to me was it was not about the actual geographical place where I was from. It was about the complex of confusions and misunderstandings that I had had about that place, and about my place in it, and about its place in America. Uh, it was it was it was about a state of mind or an, an enchantment, and that was where I was from. Uh -huh. So that that place, it's not just that it doesn't exist anymore; it's that it may never have may existed. never have existed. Yes. For me, when you start when people start to talk about the American dream, you know, I'm always well. A dream is something you wake up from. Mm -hmm. um, but but. How did it have such a purchase? Uh, I don't know how it did. Uh, it was, it was, it was the, 
it was it was the it was the central story of my childhood. It was the story that gave us um, that gave us the, that that as a family was seen to give us value. That was Joan Didion. In 2015, I had the privilege of speaking with Michael about my book, Citizen, an American lyric. An American poet whose work, to me, becomes more and more exciting, meaningful, crucial to our moment in the world. And her new book, which is published by Grey Wolf Press, is called Citizen, an American lyric. The work is hugely accessible in a way that modern poetry often is not. How important to you is that accessibility? Michael, thank you for having me on the show. There's so much that I do in the writing to try and create a kind of transparency in the in the work. So it has to do with kind of distilling it down to the thing that matters. So draft after draft after draft has to do with taking away anything that I feel unnecessary and having each word work as hard as it can in service of whatever the piece is. The work is clarified like butter, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Distilling, clarifying bringing things to the point where nothing interrupts the flow of the line. Citizen is a book-length study of the racial condition in America that is particularized in each and every citizen. It's not just someone who's been attacked, brutalized, lynched, shot, killed. It's every person with a black or brown body who experiences a transaction in the world that does not feel welcoming. Well, that feels like a breach of something. I mean, I, I my... My sense was that I wanted to investigate intimacy, actually. Like what happens when you are up against another person and if that other person happens to have a different color skin. What happens when you get tripped up and you know it's because of your skin color, and only because of that. Or maybe not only because of that, because often I think um, racism comes in as a reaction to more complicated dynamics. But but nonetheless, I was... Uh, so, you know, people say, is this a book about race? In my imagination, initially it was a book about intimacy. Let's hear one of these pieces. You and your partner go to see the film The House We Live In. You asked a friend to pick up your child from school. On your way home, your phone rings. Your neighbor tells you he is standing at his window watching a menacing black guy casing both your homes. The guy is walking back and forth, talking to himself, and seems disturbed. You tell your neighbor that your friend, whom he has met, is babysitting. He says, no, it's not him. 
He's met your friend, and this isn't that nice young man. Anyway, he wants you to know. He's called the police. Your partner calls your friend and asks him if there's a guy walking back and forth in front of your home. Your friend says that if anyone were outside, he would see him because he is standing outside. You hear the sirens through the speakerphone. Your friend is speaking to your neighbor when you arrive home. The four police cars are gone. Your neighbor has apologized to your friend and is now apologizing to you. Feeling somewhat responsible for the actions of your neighbor, you clumsily tell your friend that the next time he wants to talk on the phone, he should just go in the backyard. He looks at you a long minute before saying he can speak on the phone wherever he wants. Yes, of course, you say. Yes, of course. Now, the first section of the book is full of descriptions of such incidents, and they reminded me of Wordsworth's idea of a lyric poem, emotion recollected in tranquility. The weight of each pronoun is there for the reader's eye to say, wait, who? Oh, yes, oh. Oh, the friend is the man standing outside the house, casing the joint. Mm -hmm. Oh, Oh, that must be me. And the misunderstanding is carefully delineated so that unlike much poetry and prose, we cannot fail to find ourselves as readers mm -hmm. inside this dilemma. Four police cars and you arrive home after they're all gone. So you haven't witnessed the probably more horrible dialogue that had to occur. Mm -hmm. This is the intimate dialogue of racism. One of the things you add to the Wordsworth formula, emotion recollected in tranquility, is that seething under the tranquility is withheld anger. Mm -hmm. Withheld anger, um, but also uh, that piece for me is important because, I, you know, it, I'm the one who said you should go in the backyard. And that was a moment when I realized that I, I was enacting the same kind of policing in an effort to protect him from my neighbor's policing. And the ways in which racism catches us all, even when you think the intention is good. That was me, Claudia Rankin. In today's Bookworm Retrospective show, Michael also talked with David Foster Wallace, Russell Banks, Toni Morrison, William H. Gass, and Joan Didion about the story of America. 
This is the first of three shows to take up such a vast and central story about this country. I am grateful to KCRW for making it possible for me to honor Michael Silverblatt for his monumental accomplishments on behalf of literature and writers. This show was produced by Alan Howard and Connie Alvarez. The engineer was P.J. Shahamat. Bookworm and this retrospective are made possible by Lannan Foundation. I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen.